we have um, lesson two. I can't believe that we finished that handout last week. That was, I was amazed. But lesson two, faithful biblical soul care. So this is, we're going to talk about how does faith apply and how does it impact the, the way that we counsel others. So for our review, I'm just going to ask you a question. Uh, we talked about the, cult, the cultural understanding of faith and what God's word describes as faith. And what's, what were some of the differences that we talked about? optimism in the world and uh, you got to have faith you know lift your and positively optimistically yeah yeah faith a lot of times in our culture is just optimism or just hopeful warm fuzzy feelings and being positive and sending good vibes and that, that kind of stuff right so um, that is this if you can believe it you can yeah, yeah. Sort of, I remember that one. and it's this idea <laughs> yeah this idea that, that uh, no matter what it looks like have faith, even if all evidence is to the contrary, right? So that there's there's that idea in of faith in our culture. Any any other thoughts about the, the cultural understanding? Talk about how faith is sometimes it's like dismissed and derided as this anti-intellectual. It's just what people do, and they don't want to face the reality. Okay. We also talked about how what what people put their faith in. They trust science or um, the government or political figures, um, sports. You know, they put our our trust in a lot of things, um, being healthy, having money, and then that is what they set their hope and their faith in. That's what they trust in, and that's going to get them what they need. What about biblically? What do we talk about as far as biblical faith, particularly saving faith? How is that different from all those things? You used Hebrews 11, 1 as like a baseline for a definition of it. Mm-hmm. Yep, Hebrews 11, 1. Faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And there, there is a, there's a proving that goes along with faith. There is a, an impact on your life. Um, and it gets to that, that fill in the blank there. Saving faith is more than knowledge. Right, that's the first blank. More than knowledge. You can't just know some facts and call that faith. And it's more than just affirming things or... Um, agreeing. So, faith is, it is those two things. You do have to have those things, but there's another um, piece. Look at this um, definition. This is Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology. It's a really big book uh, out there. You can get it from the, the Resource Center. But he says in there, saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. What stands out to you in that definition <clears throat> that goes beyond knowledge and affirmation or agreement? Could you read that one more time? Yeah. Saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. 
give you kind of there's the trust. That's that's the big piece. How is trust different from knowledge? Because even the demons know. Yeah, so the demons know, but they don't trust. Them. They don't trust Jesus, right? How is trust different from just affirmation? So I I know some facts about Jesus, and I say, yeah, that's probably true. Sure, I'll affirm that. Is that saving faith? No, it's not. Saving faith is that trust piece is missing. And and look at this next comment here. Um, it, it really did a good job. He did a good job of summarizing what we talked about last week. <clears throat> because saving faith in Scripture involves this personal trust, the word trust is a better word to use in contemporary culture than the word faith or belief. The reason is that we can believe something to be true with no personal commitment or dependence involved in it. I can believe that Canberra, Canberra, I'm not even sure how you say that, is the capital of Australia, or that seven times six is 42, but I have no personal commitment or dependence on, or on anyone when I simply believe those facts. <coughs> the word faith, on the other hand, is sometimes used today to refer to an almost irrational commitment to something in spite of strong evidence to the contrary. A sort of irrational decision to believe something that we are quite sure is not true. In these two popular senses, the word belief and the word faith have a meaning contrary to the biblical sense. So we add that, that word that maybe as we're talking to people in our daily lives and um, people in our family or people at work, faith is not just, uh, because it carries with it some cultural things, maybe we should add in trust. When you trust someone, what does that mean? What's required for you to trust someone? You have to rely on them, so you, you actually, you know, you can put yourself kind of on the line if you trust someone. Yeah, you, you rely on them, you depend on them for something. What does somebody have to do or be for you to trust them? Prove them. They have to be trustworthy. They have to be trustworthy. They have to prove. Well, previous experience. Mm -hmm. Dependable. Yeah. You don't just trust anybody, right? Like I, I, need, I need a babysitter for my girls. I'm just going to find out somebody. Let's go walk and I'll find somebody. Hey, you. Would you like to watch? No. I don't trust my children with any random person. you got to have a proven track record. Right. I have to know them. Right, to know them well enough to see their pattern of living, to see their character. Okay, can someone have saving faith if they don't know who Jesus is? No. So in that sense, they have to. We have to know things. There's certain things we have to know. We're going to talk about that in a minute. We have to know things, facts, information. We have to affirm it. Yeah, I believe that that's true, but we have to trust him and rely on him and him alone, as we'll see in a little bit. So our objectives today, we are going to recount the tremendous blessings afforded to us by salvation, um, in salvation by faith. And then we're going to consider the impact of a biblical understanding of faith on the counsel we give to people. So those are our two um, big objectives. Those are our goals for today. <clears throat> Turn over to page two. Can I share a great example of faith? Yes. We were on a mission trip inside Burma 
which and the missionary we were with was the number one fighting kill missionary for the Burmese army. And we came to a place where he had to go and do some recon, and it was too dangerous for my husband and I. And he asked me, can you trust me? Yes, yes. And we said, we well, guess. I mean, and we were given to a group of porters who spoke no English and walked through the jungle without Dave. So I just, when you said, what's trust? And yeah, and that's that's a part that's missing, and we talked about this a little bit last year. That's part that that kind of reliance and follow through with our faith that's missing in a lot of, of even Christianity today and in, in the in our culture. Like we we have faith in Jesus, we or so we profess, or a lot of people profess, but there's no follow through. There's no walking with Him, obeying Him. There's there's nothing in our lives that's impacted. So that's not really faith. That's not saving faith. And we talked about James 2. That kind of faith is a dead faith. The faith that does not, is not demonstrated by works is dead, and it does not save. And that's the danger of a lot of people, a lot of people around us that are kind of culturally Christian-ish. And, but they're not, they don't have faith in Christ. I just think that a perfect example is the fact that I've been driving a long time and I drive alone by myself, but my husband still doesn't trust my driving. <laughs> well, <laughs> true. I mean, I don't know. I don't say about that one. We're going continue on. No. There may not be any reason for that lack of faith that John has. <laughs> All right. Let's look here. Um, when we think about biblical counseling, so now we're going we're gonna to kind of Examine faith and sal- and saving faith. Sorry, in light of how does how does it impact impact me as a counselor or even as as a counselee? If I'm looking for counsel from someone else, what what role does faith play? But first of all, let's let's think about this. What's the goal of biblical counseling? Why do it? So we're encouraging them to walk with the Lord. We're, we're wanting to help them along to, for what reason? What, what's the end goal? Isn't, isn't there something, though, that has gone on that's caused the counseling to start? Because discipling and counseling are different, right? Yeah, so, I, and we kind of use them interchangeably. So yeah, we, we, you yeah. could be thinking of a discipleship relationship you have with someone. What's the goal of discipleship? What's the goal of, yeah. of if you're doing it's it biblically? Mentoring. Yeah. But what is if the goal it's of biblical that? counseling? There's normally an issue while you're there, mm-hmm. so you're trying to restore their their relationship with God. Yep. So we want to help them know the Lord, walk with the Lord, be like Jesus. Right. We we want to help them. And the same thing if you're discipling someone, you're mentoring somebody in the faith. You're trying to help them to walk closer with the Lord, to be Christ-like. That's the goal of all of this. Um, so from our website, uh, on the church website, here's, here's a paragraph that we have on there. It says, the goal of biblical counseling is spiritual, relational, and personal maturity as evidenced in desires, thoughts, motives, actions, and emotions that increasingly reflect Jesus. 
We believe that such personal change must be centered on the person of Christ. We are convinced that personal ministry centered on Christ and anchored in Scripture offers the only lasting hope and loving hope, help to a fallen and broken world. So if, if our goal is spiritual, relational, and personal maturity as evidence in those things that it reflect Jesus, what do you think this follow-up question? Is biblical counseling for unbelievers? No. <laughs> and yes. I mean, yes in that you want them there, but what they need first is they cannot, you cannot point them to the scriptures and expect them to have the spirit of God in them help them to understand and obey those scriptures. Mm-hmm. So the first goal would be evangelism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, so we're, we would say biblical counseling. Let's say we're about to, our goal right now, Fennel's Bible Church, is to open up the, the biblical counseling center to the community. Well, eventually, that, that is our goal. Why would we do that if, if like, our stated goal is to, is to make them reflect Jesus? They don't know Jesus, potentially, probably. So what is the deal there? And this, this is actually kind of a topic of a debate. Um, in his book, Heath Lambert's book, um, The Theology of Biblical Counseling, he, uh, he talks about Jay Adams, who's kind of the, the starter of the biblical counseling movement. And he, biblical counsel, uh, he said that biblical counseling really is, is only for Christians. That's what Jay Adams said. And he said, because the goal of biblical counseling is to make somebody more like Jesus, and if they don't love Jesus, they're not going to be like him. And, and Heath Lambert says he kind of broadens the definition of biblical counseling to include it's applying scripture to the problems of people, right? So that can include counseling right? Disciple, well, it's not really discipling if somebody's not walking with the Lord, right? But, but if we open this biblical counseling center and people who are unbelievers come in, can we do anything about that? Yes, we can, because does the scripture apply to an unbeliever? Yes, it does. Can we do that faithfully? Yes. So whether they're a Christian or not, we can do that. What's going to be the difference? If I'm, if I'm counseling a, an unbeliever here versus a believer. Yeah. So an unbeliever maybe is not going to be quite as convinced yet, Lord willing, that this is authoritative. But we believe that. So we're, we, we use this. We use scripture to counsel them. So a key difference is going to be their response. A lot of times my call to someone who, let's say it's a believer who's struggling with anxiety or, or depression. Okay. Or if it's an unbeliever struggling with anxiety, anxiety or depression. My, what is my basic counsel going to be to both of them? Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Put your faith in Christ. For the believer, it's going to be for their sanctification, their growth in Christian maturity. For the unbeliever, it's for salvation. You ought to be depressed, right? You are heading for an eternity without God, enduring his wrath forever. That's depressing, right? That's terrifying. We are calling both of them 
to have faith in Christ. So in one sense, the difference between um, counseling a believer versus an unbeliever is their response. We're still going to call them to faith in Christ. And that'll look a little bit different. And, and I really encourage you. Uh, it's, it's chapter 10 is where I, I draw a lot of the material from today in Heath Lambert's book. And it, he really does a good job of laying it all out. <clears throat> but there's a, there's a way in which we need to, whether they're an unbeliever or a believer, we're calling them to faith in Christ. And we're going to see uh, as we go along. That really helps deal with a lot of the sin issues that we struggle with. I think, too, if they come, they know that this is a church. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of it is they're coming because they're searching. Mm-hmm. They want hope. Mm-hmm. So they're searching for meaning. They're searching for solving their problems. So they'll be op- more mm-hmm. open. For someone who, who is an unbeliever who comes to the Biblical Counseling Center at Flint Hills Bible Church, it probably means they've been struggling for this for a long time, and they're tired of it, and they have not much hope. We're probably not going to be the first on the list, right, to go to. They may have tried people in their family, um, people they trust, like teachers or uh, different people in different organizations that they've uh, known. They may have tried um, a mental health institution, right? They've, they've tried probably a lot of different things, and they have not been... Um, They've not experienced the change that they want. Now, they may, as Perry, they may, may come in here and just reject the authority of the scripture, and then they won't probably come back very often, right? But we have an opportunity to call an unbeliever to faith in Christ, just like we would call a believer to, to more faithfully trust in Jesus uh, for your sanctification. The other thing is, uh, a lot of people who we think are believers may not be. Right? So I'm sitting with somebody in a kind of a counseling situation or even a discipleship situation who's been coming to church, who seems to be you know, joyful in Christ. And then as we talk with one another, it's pretty apparent this guy didn't love the Lord Jesus. He, he still loves a lot of his life, a lot of the sinfulness, a lot of worldliness that he's been in for his whole life. So there might be a situation where I'm not going to say, well, time out. Sorry, I can't do this. You're not a believer. Let me, let me restart here, heathen. You know, we're still calling them to faith in Jesus Christ. And eventually, we will see. You'll see the fruit, right? Because living faith, like James says, will produce a pattern of living that is consistent with that um, profession of faith. So, some similarities and differences. We talked about that. Look at number seven, the question number seven. We could... What could be a common mistake or danger in counseling believers? Let's do that one first. When you're counseling believers, what could be a common mistake um, that we might make? Related to just faith. I think you're working on the assumption, the, the mistake would be working on the assumption that you're on common ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we can assume that, that well, of course they're a Christian. They know everything that I know. They understand everything that I understand. They've read all, of, all the things that I've read. Okay, So there's, we can assume that they know exactly what we mean, and we can gloss over things too quickly. Yeah? That can go over with basic terms as well. Mm-hmm. So like, what does trust actually mean? You should ask that question. Mm-hmm. What does trust in the Lord, trusting in the Lord look like? Um, so all those basic terms, faith, trust, even who God is, you have to ask all those questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So making sure that they have a, an accurate biblical understanding of even the vocabulary that we're using. When we talk about faith, do they know what faith means? Or because we're surrounded by it, is faith just mean this intellectual, I've got the right ideas in my head, so I have faith in Jesus. So we, in this room, there's probably some assumptions going on that you think that I believe the same things that you do and, and that we have the same ideas behind all the <coughs> words that I'm using. It becomes really important to be explicit, to think through and, and ask questions, to listen. I think, the, I think another danger, especially when we're talking about Christians, is sometimes we think, well, the, yeah, that faith and repentance stuff, that's what you do at the beginning. And so we just, hey, do this. Be like me. I mean, come on. But there, there's some, so in some ways that we could direct people, maybe the wrong way, and in, in some indirect way that we're, we're counseling them to put faith or trust in their own abilities to be godly. Or to stop doing whatever they're struggling with, Jason. I think you also run the risk of what what is freedom in Christ to you versus what's freedom in Christ to someone else. You could run into a situation where you may have the ability to do something that would cause whoever you're talking with, whoever you're mentoring, to struggle. Like such as like if you're you know you can have you know a relationship with you have a friendly relationship with a woman and like you understand but like you don't really interact with this woman outside of like with your wife or something like that but if they can, if they see that they may struggle if they if they can't they just can't establish those boundaries and likewise if they have a if they if there's something that they don't really struggle with like let's say they you know will occasionally have a beer or something and then per the counselor tends to like he strides away from it, he has convictions about it and not, and like could really dial in on that as like a sin issue. Mm -hmm. And it might not be, it might not be a, it might just be, you know, he can, he can enjoy that freedom. This person can enjoy that freedom and like putting preferences, personal mm -hmm. preferences on a counseling yeah. situation could complicate things. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So we have to be careful not to elevate our preferences. If they're not firmly found and, and I can't point to you in a scripture, says don't do X, then I, I shouldn't probably major on those things. Now, there might be room for discussion. So if it's alcohol, we might need to discuss that. And, and with the, the woman example, it's probably going to be the other way around. There are probably going to be things where, well, yeah, I really want you to meet with my wife, Brock. Well, I mean, my wife and I might meet with you and your wife or with your wife. But um, So there, there might be some things there that they're assuming certain understandings and, and, um, and practices that we don't do. Um, for some of those same reasons. So yeah, that's, that's a good point. What about unbelievers? What's a common, um, maybe a, a mistake that we can make when counseling unbelievers? You want them to develop the ability to, obviously you want them to be saved, but you also don't want them to rely too heavily on you, thinking that mm -hmm. you are the reason that <coughs> things are going well or they're being able all these things, so you really need to focus on the fact that this is through the Lord, this mm -hmm. isn't through me as your counselor, this is through your relationship with the Lord. Yeah, and, and there's a certain sense in that, that's a great point, Lauren. Would, if I'm just giving them the right answers all the time, I'm not walking them through the scriptures and how they can get to the right answers, then they will have to come to me, and that's going to be their assumption, is, well, my, my counselor, he, he just or she just knows it, so I just got to go to them. That's where I get 
you know, to be more godly as I go to my discipler or this person who is a little older than I am and has a good marriage, so I just need to go to them. They're, they're the magic person. They're my, my lucky charm. <laughs> they're, but rather than walking them through the scriptures and showing them, hey, I mean, it's in here, and this is how you find it, and, and walking them through that, that's a great one. Will? I was just saying, I'll rely on Christ and scripture rather than have them think you're their life coach. Mm-hmm. You're just pointing to Jesus, mm-hmm. not yourself. Yeah. I think so too. You can miss the relational aspect that they need to develop with the Lord, what they're saying, and turn them into kind of a legalist mm-hmm. to where you're showing them like these are the precepts that you know. Yeah. Be, but we see them as relational precepts, and mm-hmm. they can see them. Yeah, here's three keys to stop struggling with right. whatever, and and then it becomes a, a formula or a, just a, a practice, a routine that they need to add to their lives instead of know the Lord, trust the Lord, um, and having that first. That's great. Um, if you're not careful, I think uh, if you're like say counseling somebody, especially like with an unbeliever, you can kind of get. You, you definitely want to guide them through and get them to realize the, their own sin, not say, hey, that's a sin here. Mm-hmm. Let me guide, uh, show you and tell you. That's, th- those are two different things, I think, and that actually, like, that can be, that can have a different effect than I think here intended goal, mm-hmm. which is to bring them closer to Christ rather than, oh, I'm going to, there's no hope for me sort yeah. of thing. I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. Um, me identifying all their sins for them, or or on the other side, it was kind of the the flip side of what Lauren was talking about. If I if the one who gives them all the good advice and they think that it comes from me rather than scriptures, that's a problem. Right? I've made a made a, a blunder there. I think one other one that we've got we've got to carefully navigate is because uh, personally I I stray too far on the side of I don't want to like give them false false assurance of their faith. So I'm never going to give them any affirmation. I'm never going to tell them that, hey, that will look like I see fruit in your life. Because maybe, what if they're not saved? And then I'm just affirming them and I'm giving them false hope that they're saved when they're really not. And they're, there's a danger of us doing that, right? We can too quickly move and, and say, oh, she said she believes in Jesus. I do my, with my children or something. I can, I can hey, three-year-old, you're a Christian. You know, and I, I can start telling her she's a Christian before she's had any fruit, before she's really understood what it means, and from the time she's three, she thinks that she's a Christian. Because daddy told her. <coughs> okay, so we don't want to do that. But we also don't want to beat them down and say, well, I don't know, you sinned. I don't know, if you were a Christian, you wouldn't have done that. So there's, there's a balance there of, of looking for fruit and patterns in their life, loving them and helping pointing them to trust in the Lord Jesus and how that works in your your affections and what you say and how you treat people so there, there's a walking with people the relational aspect with that we have to don't stray too far on this side uh, where I, I beat them down every time I see them sin once I said you should probably be questioning your salvation <laughs> versus over here where oh, she said thank you she must be a Christian you know there's there, there's a, a balance. You can fall off the horse on both sides. Okay, so that that's a danger that we have to be careful of when we're counseling or discipling um, uh, people who are unbelievers. So, point.
point three, salvation by faith. So we're gonna we're gonna read a couple of verses, and this is uh, really where we're going to when someone who is uh, an unbeliever or maybe a new believer who's kind of maybe struggling with some things, the first understanding of, of faith for them is what we're going to focus on here. And then we're going to kind of broaden it out and we're going to look at the whole spectrum of what does salvation do? What is it? How is it applied? What's kind of the timeline in a sense of all the blessings and the glorious truths about salvation? But first, we start with the basic part, the call to salvation through faith. Um, after reading the following text, we're going to fill in those two blanks there. Okay? Two biblical ingredients. Acts 20, verses 18 through 21. And when they came to him, these are the elders of the Ephesian church. This is Paul telling them he's about to not see them again. And, and so he, he has a conversation with the elders of that church. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and, tr and with trials that happened to me throughout the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Here's what he's teaching them testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What were those two ingredients necessary for saving faith? For salvation. Repentance and faith. Right. Repentance and faith. So here's a definition of repentance. It has kind of a similar structure that we'll talk about. To faith, there's kind of three components. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Okay, so turn the page. Page three, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. We cannot place our faith or our trust in Jesus Christ while holding on to our sin. We're not going to trust him if we love our sin. We cannot forsake our sin and turn to God without trusting in Christ. Christ is the only one who makes it possible for us to go to God. So together, faith and repentance are referred to as conversion. Or, um, there's a lot of words for it, but being born again, the new birth. Okay? Those are talking about faith and repentance together two sides of the same coin, that work salvation that God uses to save people. So there's a, that similar structure is knowledge plus affirmation or agreeing agreement plus a willful action. So in genuine repentance, what do you have to know? If you're de determining whether this person is genuinely repentant what do they have to know? What's the knowledge, the facts that they need to know? That a sinner fails to holy God. That God is holy, they're sinners. I'm not. God, holy, me, not holy. What else? They cannot save themselves. Can't save myself. Nothing I can do about it. Gotta know that. Good. Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses. I'm dead? Mm-hmm. I'm dead, can't do anything about it. Dead people can't bring themselves to life. How does God feel about my current condition? Unsaved. Uh, he thinks he's okay he with it? An enemy. Yeah, 
You're an enemy to him. I'm an enemy of God. He is holy and hates sin. He wants you to be reconciled to him, which means to not be enemies mm-hmm. of him. Yeah, and he's going to punish sin, right? Which puts me in a bad position. So I have to know that, and I also have to agree with that. I have to affirm that. If I, if somebody tells me that, hey, you're under the wrath of God for your sin because he's holy and you're sinful, you're a rebel. I say, yeah, right. Like, you can tell me that information. It goes into my head, and I reject it. Okay, I'm not repentant, but I, I know these things. I believe them, I affirm them. And what is the willful action? Confession and sorrow over your sin. Mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, confession of the sin, sorrow over it. So, there's a, a grieving over my sin and how, what I've done. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are there, and they're not Christians. A lot of people are there. There's a turning away of it. There's a forsaking of it. That's where it gets hard. That's where a lot of people, they will hear that God is holy. I'm a sinner. But, but to turn away from that, to forsake my sin, my selfishness, my pride, my fill in the blank, that is what's keeping them from turning towards the Lord. You can't turn towards the Lord and take your sin with you. So that's that willful action. What about faith? So back to saving faith, trust in the Lord Jesus. What do we have to know to have faith? Jesus is the one who pays the price for our sin. Jesus died for sinners. Got to know that. There's only one way. He's the only way. He's not one option on a buffet of ways to love the Lord. He's the only way. He paid the price for my sin. Okay, a lot of people are there. What's the action? Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has risen from the dead. You shall be saved. Yeah, confess with my heart. Believe. It's that trust. I'm trusting in him that, that he will do that for me. I can give a gospel call on a street corner, the street evangelism, get on a box, preach a sermon. The, the message goes out. You're sinners. But God in his holiness and justice is always, he's also merciful and gracious. And he's extended one way for you to be saved, to enjoy him forever. It's trusting in Jesus. You talked about dangers that we can, we can go off one side or the other. Everything you just said, I would say most Christians would say, oh, well, that's, that's yeah, I'm saved from that. So yeah, that's how easily like saving faith and repentance can be pushed to the side. Mm-hmm. But anytime we sin as a believer, we're putting ourselves back into that bondage. So you have to repent again. Mm-hmm. Not for saving faith, but you have to repent. Yeah. And you have to continue in faith. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we forget that. Like we're so focused on our sanctification and our freedom in Christ and how we're in Christ, which are all true. But... When we sin, we have to repent again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there, in that, in genuine repentance, first of all, that good, great point. It's not just a one-time thing. I'll say that again. We said that a little bit earlier. Repentance and trust in Jesus is a lifelong thing that we ought to do every day, multiple times per day, to repent of sin, 
to trust Jesus that he has paid the penalty for that sin. I don't have to beat myself up. But I do need to forsake it, turn away from it, turn towards him, trust in Jesus. So that is a lifelong thing. So there, and the vast majority of people that, that I interact with who say that they're Christians, who seem to be somewhat, at least, at least culturally Christian-ish, they, they say they'll believe in God, they say those kinds of things, they're, they're at those first two. They have some knowledge, they know some facts, and they would even agree with them. But there is no repenting from sin and trusting in Jesus alone for salvation, for the cleansing of their sins. Okay? That's, I mean, big problem with the Catholic Church, right? Mm -hmm. They will affirm all of those facts that we've said so far, most of them, right? They, they have some knowledge, accurate. They would say, yes, that's true. I am a sinner. God is holy. I need Jesus. But there's not a trust in the work of Jesus Christ alone. There's a trust in my ability to stop and gradually stop doing those bad things. And when I do some bad things, I just go confess it real quick and then I go back. There's, there's trust in that. And, but I do need Jesus. I need Jesus because he gets me over the hump. Right? That is not saving faith. There's a lot of, I have a lot of dear Catholic friends, and it's, it's tragic. They're, they're almost there, but they're trusting in Jesus plus me. Well, Rock, would it be a good term to use, like, walk in repentance, have it daily walk on your heart, mm -hmm. but having that, so you don't just assume it's just a one-time, mm -hmm. okay, I, I repented, I'm a Christian. Yeah. It's a good way to put it. walk in repentance. I think of it as a relationship. I mean, we have a relationship with the Holy God, and we have to maintain that just like we do a relationship with a mate or our family. I mean, that's how important it should be. It's a constant part of our life. Mm -hmm. So, knowing that these, those are kind of the three ingredients for faith and repentance. We have to know some things. We have to agree and affirm those things. And then we have to act. Can you grow in your faith? How would you do that? Spending time in the Word. Why? Why would spending time in the Word grow my faith? You can't grow your faith if you're not spending time with God. Yeah. Thinking about that structure, those ingredients, what, what, time do, what is spending time in the Word? Which one of those three things does that help me do? Maybe multiple. It changes our thinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we know Him. He reveals Himself in His Word, and if I read the Word, I will know more about Him. That's what, what Peggy was saying, is there, there's that that relational part that you, that you have to know someone to trust them, right? So if I'm going to trust Jesus, I have to know what he's like, know what the Lord is like. So, yeah, reading scripture, 
And scripture affirms that what's the Proverbs? A man looks at his face in the mirror and mm -hmm. turns around and immediately forget, forgets what he looks like. Scripture's the same way if you're not in the Word. Mm -hmm. You're going to know some things and then eventually you're going to forget <coughs> things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's, there's the, that danger of I'm, I'm reading God's Word and I know in my mind, somewhere back in the back, that this is, this is God's word and this is self-revelation to me and he, does, he reveals himself because he loves me, wants me to know him, but I'm doing it because I know that's a Christian should do. Check it off my list. Read my Bible. Faith must, I think it grew two sizes today. Okay? To make it all a formula where faith is just this, these, I follow these certain steps, this is my workout plan, I'm going to get bigger muscles. I'm going to get bigger faith muscles because I'm reading my Bible and then I spend three minutes and 45 seconds in prayer, and then I did. Now, so if we're reading scripture to know the Lord, that's what it all comes back to. What is What do I want to do as I'm reading scripture? Am I just doing this because I know I have to? Now, not to fall off on that side of the horse, we do need to do it sometimes because we know we need it. It's not just, I'm not just going to love to read the word every day. And it's just going to be this pleasant experience. And sometimes it's like I'm tired, but I know I need the Lord. And I'm going to read the Word. So there is a, there's an element of that, of obedience. And doing it even though I might not feel like it. But the pattern of my life and my devotions and my scripture reading, is it so that I can check it off a list and so I can say, hey, I'm doing my devotions like a good Christian should. Or is it to know the Lord so I can trust him more? How can I trust the Lord in the middle of my anxiety? I need to know him. What does he say? What is he like when I'm worried? How does he feel about me? That will affect my level of anxiety. Okay, so there, there are things that I need to know. If I want to grow in my faith, my faith is weak. Jesus, I was going through Matthew just yesterday and, and looking at all the times that Jesus said, oh, you have little faith. And it, it's, it's really interesting. It, there's one where he, the, the centurion comes and he, is, uh, he says, hey, Lord, I, would you please heal my servant? And he says, you don't even have to come to my house. He says, you have such authority that you could say the word and it would be done. And he gives the example, I, I'm under authority and I can tell the servant to go do this and, and him to go do that, and, and they do it. So you could say the word, and I'm not even worthy to have you come to my house. Just say it, and he'll be healed. Like, and Jesus marvels at his faith. He says, I have not found faith like that in all of Israel. This is a Roman. And then a little bit later, the disciples are in a boat, and Jesus is sleeping, and they're, they're like, we're going to die. And, and Jesus says, why are, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. What's the, what's the thing that makes the centurion's faith great and the disciples' faith little? It's their, their focus on circumstances and fears rather than on who Jesus is. And the disciples should know. They spent more time with Jesus than the centurion did. And time and time again, the, he tells the disciples, oh, you of little faith, how long am I going to be with you? Like, trust me. Remember what I said. 
So we had to know, we had to know Jesus. We can affirm, we have an, an attitude, and this is requires some humility. Whatever Jesus says, whatever the word says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to affirm that the, that the scripture is true, not my experience and not my preference. That has to be part of our faith, our trust. If it's not, then I don't trust him. I think I'm smarter. I've got a better way. Look at a couple of these um, verses here. Hebrews 13, 7. I'll turn quickly and we're kind of run out of time. The writer of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Okay. So one way to, to build up your faith is to look at godly men and women and imitate their faith. Second Peter, I mean, we could do the whole chapter. Chapter 1, I was trying to figure out where to start here, uh, and where to stop, but um, I was read a few verses. Second Peter 1, Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our, of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, of, and of Jesus our Lord. And he continues, he, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and with virtue, with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's, so adding to our faith all of those things. And Jude. <clears throat> Jude 18 through 25. <clears throat> I'll back up to 17. But you must remember, beloved, the, the predictions of the apostles in our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who div cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And then this beautiful doxology, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. So we can increase our faith. We <clears throat> seek to know the Lord. We seek to affirm everything that the Bible says, that everything that we learn about God in Scripture. We submit ourselves to it. 
<clears throat> and we obey. We trust him and obey. We build those patterns of life. We, I'm going to wait to go into the next one <clears throat> that is getting more into all of that that scripture teaches us about salvation. Those who are saved, what has happened to them? And what is true of them? And this is um, one of those things where <clears throat> my prayer and my goal is that, that these are things that I've heard dozens, maybe hundreds of times. But I don't want us to just be like, okay, cruise control. This is, he's going to talk about justification or talk about election or calling. Like all of those things are wonderful doctrines and, and but how do they apply to our hearts? How, how do I feel about those? How do I think about those things? And counseling and providing uh, soul care to others. So we'll stop there, page three. And this, that's more like the, the pace that I usually go on these notes. Um, and then next week we'll pick up right there, point four, faithful counsel. Thanks, everybody.